Welcome to Investigate Joe Rogan. Today I will be looking at episode 1478 with Joel Salatin. He said a lot of things that are true, but he also said many questionable things. For instance, this guy says that he has not been sick for 20 years, and he attributes this to the fact that he regularly drinks out of the same water trough as his cows do. He does this to boost his immune system, he says. What exactly is the average listener, who does not live on a farm, supposed to do with this information exactly? Drink their dog's water? Go drink from puddles and streams outside in the woods? I mean, really, what, what is the application here? What is he trying to say? Should you just go eat things from the ground? Anyone with even the most basic level of outdoor knowledge will tell you that this is just not a good idea. Now, you really can prevent your immune system from becoming worse with a good diet, exercising, sleeping enough, and getting vitamin D, aka the sun. However, you cannot boost your immune system beyond the normal levels. You cannot build some sort of super immune defense. Harvard Medical says, quote, there are no scientifically proven direct links between lifestyle and enhanced immune function. In other words, drinking from animal troughs will not prevent you from getting coronavirus, which is what he seems to imply will happen. I really shouldn't even need to say this, but I mean, here we are. He also basically endorses this idea of herd immunity as a way of stopping coronavirus, and I have seen this elsewhere on the internet as well. And this is at least a bit more scientific than drinking cow water, but it is also not a good idea. Herd immunity is the idea that if enough people in a population are immune to a disease, it won't be able to spread. Because even though some people are at risk, it's hard for the virus to get to them by jumping from person to person because most of those persons will just fight it off. So the disease will just sort of bounce around and all these people who are immune won't pass it on. They'll kill it in its tracks and then everything will be good. So for a group to have herd immunity, most people, or at least a significant amount of people, have to be immune. But most people are not immune to coronavirus. In fact, almost nobody seems to be immune to coronavirus. The only people who may be immune are those who have already had it. At least that is probably the case. Most scientists and doctors think that you will not be able to get coronavirus twice. It's not confirmed yet, but it's thought that that is probably the case. So those people are immune, but because there's no vaccine, that's only a, a very small handful of people who are immune. So <laughs> in order to 
build up herd immunity, you would have to just let the virus spread to almost everyone in America. And if you did this, <laughs> a very large amount of people would die. But yes, you would then most likely achieve herd immunity. This would basically be the kamikaze option here to stopping the virus. It may happen eventually, like it or not, if containment measures fail, but it's not really something we should want to do. I can see why Salatin likes the idea, because, you know, herd is also a term for a group of cows, and he likes cows, but I don't think that this is an advisable course of action. Now, they don't just talk about the plague. They also talk about farming. And Salatin basically says that grass-fed farming could be scaled up. You could feed the whole country with grass-fed pasture meat. And I talked about this in the episode I did on Chris Kresser as well. The answer is basically yes, you could, but it probably will not happen. A paper called Nationwide Shift to Grass-Fed Beef Requires Larger Cattle Population says that one of the problems with this is that you would need a lot more cattle because purely grass-fed cows are smaller than ones that later in life get injected with feed. So currently, 41% of all land in the U.S. is used for feeding cattle. Which, first of all, I did not know that that much of our land was just used on cows. I don't know if that's even a good idea to begin with. But then the paper estimates that this would have to grow to 67% if all beef was purely grass-fed. So there is, there is nothing preventing this from happening. There's no law or whatever stopping this. But just logistically speaking, it would be quite difficult for farms to acquire this much more land. Not to mention how much more expensive uh, this sort of beef is. So they would, you know, they would just be undercut by factory farms. The way to make it more feasible that they do not talk about is to reduce beef consumption. You know, if everybody ate less beef, then you'd need less cows, and it would be a lot easier for everything to be grass-fed because you'd need a lot less space, and then we wouldn't have to have these factory farms that, as they talk about in the episode, create viruses and are, and are really bad for animals, and they make vegans pissed, and etc. But of course, he's not going to recommend this. He's not going to recommend that people eat less meat, you know, because he makes money selling meat to people. It would be like if when Elon Musk was on, he recommended not buying electric cars. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Also pertaining to the problem of scale, he says someone ominously, we should discuss whether Los Angeles should be as big as it is. I do not know what this means exactly, and I would have liked some elaboration on this point, but we did not get any. 
Also on the topic of food, Salatin says that 9% of the income of an average American goes to food, and 40 years ago it was 18%. But those stats are reversed for healthcare. So 40 years ago, 9% of the average person's money went to healthcare, and now it's 18%. Now the food part of that is true, but the healthcare part is not true. It's like I've said before, it, it's really hard to just pull stats off the top of your head. Almost nobody on, on JRE ever gets these things right. There does not seem to be one universal estimate for how much the average American spends on healthcare. But everything I saw was somewhere around 6 to 8% of the average person's income gets used on healthcare. The average American does not spend 18% of their money on healthcare, but some do. People with low incomes, poor people, do uh, fit this stat. Because obviously, the cost of healthcare is a greater percent of their money because they have less money. So he, he's right for some people, but definitely not the average. But I mean, wouldn't this apply to almost everything? I mean, like an apple is a greater percent of a poor person's income than a rich person's income. Rich people, they probably don't even think about buying apples. As many people are doing so these days, they discuss the flu. And Rogan says that flu vaccines work even if it's a different strain of the flu. And Salatin says that that's just one opinion. And Rogan is the one who's in the wrong here. According to the CDC, quote, While vaccine effectiveness can vary, recent studies show that flu vaccination reduces the risk of flu illness by between 40 and 60% among the overall population during seasons when most circulating flu viruses are well-matched to the flu vaccine. In general, current flu vaccines tend to work better against influenza B, and influenza A, H1N1, viruses, and offer lower protection against influenza A, H3N2 viruses. During years when the flu vaccine is not well matched to circulating influenza viruses, it is possible that little or no benefit from flu vaccination may be observed. During years when there is a good match between the flu vaccine and circulating viruses, it is possible to measure substantial benefits from flu vaccination in terms of preventing flu illness and complications. So I really didn't know this either. Apparently the flu vaccine is kind of luck of the draw. Some years it could be great and then some years it might not do anything. I mean, there's no harm in getting it, but it may not actually help you at all. They talk about death and Salatin says that every percent increase in unemployment leads to 30,000 deaths annually in the U.S. from suicide and depression, deaths of despair, essentially arguing that the economic fallout of the lockdown will be worse than a widespread of coronavirus. So where does this statistic come from? Well, I would bet that he heard this stat from the movie The Big Short. 
in which Brad Pitt's character says that every 1% unemployment goes up, 40,000 people die. So then the question, where does Brad Pitt get this statistic? Well, I guess, where does the screenwriter for The Big Short get this statistic? Because movies are not real. Brad Pitt's not even real. So, first of all, this is not an exact science. There's no exact anything here, because it's really hard to measure. If someone dies while they're unemployed, how do you know if they died because they were unemployed? Even if it's something like alcoholism, did they become an alcoholic because they were unemployed? How do you know? What if they became unemployed because they were an alcoholic and they couldn't show up to work on time? It's tough to measure stuff like this. But this number, 40K for every 1% increase, comes from a social scientist named Harvey Brenner, who did a study of mortality from 1974 to 1975, which was a recession. And he says that this was a good rule of thumb, even if it wasn't exact. However, not everyone agrees with this. This is not a widely accepted death rule by any means. A study I found called Life and Death During the Great Depression concludes that, quote, during this period, mortality decreased for almost all ages and gains of several years in life expectancy were observed. It says that suicides did go up, but that they, there simply weren't enough suicides to change the overall trend, which was a positive one. Mortality decreased during the Great Depression. I would not have expected that. I would not have thought that flappers and jazz musicians lived longer in their Dust Bowls and Hoovervilles during the Depression. Now, obviously, the Great Depression is further away from us than the 1970s are, which is where the, the stat from the Big Short comes from. But another study called did the Great Recession affect mortality rates in the metropolitan United States, effects on mortality by age, gender, and cause of death, concludes... that. Well, let me pause right there. Making this podcast, I have realized that studies need to get better titles. Like, that's such a run-on. All these, A lot of these studies have really obtuse, long titles. And I think it needs to stop. But anyway... This paper concluded that, quote, mortality rates declined when unemployment rates rose in U.S. urban areas, 2005 to 2010. They also say that it likely increased drug overdose deaths, similar to how the Great Depression increased suicides. But again, it was not enough deaths to change the overall trend, which was actually a good trend. It was a positive thing. So strangely enough, it is actually not a given that a sort of coronavirus-induced second Great Depression will kill lots of people. It could actually be the opposite. So weirdly, this is sort of good news. It might not be bad, even if it makes the opioid epidemic worse, which is 
a possibility, the overall trend could still be positive. I was, I was quite surprised to, to read this. But now for a serious topic. The last thing I'll talk about here is the most important. It's more important than the plague or whatever. Joe Rogan says Caribbean cruises are really cheap. So cheap, in fact, that you can be on one for five to seven nights for just $105 with all you can eat. They're so cheap, he says, that the best strategy for a homeless person would be to try and live on a cruise ship. He says this is something he and Jamie discuss. Now, the cheapest cruise I could find was a carnival cruise from Miami to the Bahamas. That was $109. So pretty much the same cost that Rogan said. It's like 100 bucks, But it was only for three nights. I could not find anything that was as many nights as Rogan said. But still, that's pretty good, right? 100 bucks for three nights. And food is included. The only thing that's not included is alcohol. So just imagine you don't drink. And imagine you already live in Miami, so you don't have to travel to the ship. Say you just walk right onto the ship. So if you lived there for a month then, it would be like $1,000. Imagine just taking back-to-back-to-back-to-back cruises. So that is actually comparable, if not straight-up superior, to rent in major cities like New York, LA, San Francisco, etc. Especially when you take into account that you don't have to pay for food or utilities or internet or any of that stuff. So obviously this would be way more than rent in most places in America, but not really big cities. So this would be why Rogan thinks that this would be a good strat for a hobo. However, this is $109 per person, and there's no single rooms. And apparently, this is how cruise ships work. If there's just one of you, you have to pay for an imaginary person, in a sense. You have to pay as if there was another person in the room. So it's actually $218 for the, for the cruise, even if it's just one person. And then there's taxes and port fees on top of this. So it would actually come out to $316 for three nights. And now suddenly it's, it's not comparable to rent, even if you live in New York City, like downtown New York City in like Seinfeld land. So living on a cruise ship, you know, I don't know if it's all it's cracked up to be. I don't know if this, I don't think this would be a, a good strat for a homeless person after all. I would say if you're a homeless person and you have $316, you, there's actually better things you could do than, than take a cruise to the Bahamas. It's just not all it's cracked up to be. It's not like the Disney Channel show Sweet Life on Deck at all. So in, in conclusion here, don't drink cow water Don't try to live on a cruise ship, and quit your job so that you can live longer. 
Thanks for listening. Investigate Joe Rogan. Tell your friends.